Well, last Sunday, last Sunday, I began a new sermon series entitled, Blessed are the Persecuted. And in this series, series, we're going to look at 10 different Bible characters who suffered persecution for their faith in God. And we will learn from these Bible characters uh, not only how to respond to persecution in a godly manner, but how God uses persecution to purify His people and to advance His kingdom and work. The last week, we uh, looked at the first Bible character, or began to, and that was uh, Joseph. And uh, last week, I gave you a very detailed uh, review of his life. Uh, When he suffered 13 long years of injustice and mistreatment. Uh, You might remember uh, those years of suffering began when he was only 17 years of age, uh, when uh, Joseph was sold into slavery uh, by his brothers and was taken to Egypt. And then there in Egypt, he was bought by a man uh, by the name of Potiphar, uh, a captain in the Egyptian army. And Potiphar's wife uh, falsely accused Joseph of attempting to rape her, which ended up what? Landing him in prison, where he languished for many, many uh, years uh, with an iron collar around his neck, the Bible tells us, and chains that bruised his feet. Uh, Finally, uh, after some time, uh, Pharaoh's cupbearer, was actually put into prison on a suspicion of a plot against Pharaoh. But as a result of Joseph's kindness, he helped the cupbearer not only get released from prison, but to be restored uh, to his position with Pharaoh. And, of course, Joseph was expecting that that act of kindness would be reciprocated. But when the cupbearer got out of prison, we're told he totally forgot Joseph. Where he remained in prison... Uh, for another two years, where he celebrated his 30th birthday. Uh, Yet, God used all of that to accomplish his plan for Joseph. And that plan was to use Joseph to relocate the chosen family from Canaan to Egypt in order to grow them into the chosen nation before he would take them back to Canaan to conquer the land so that they would possess it as their own. Uh, God used the evil act of his brothers selling him into slavery to get him to Egypt. Uh, God used the false accusation of rape to land him in prison, so that he would befriend uh, Pharaoh's cupbearer, so that uh, he would learn of Joseph's ability, remember, to interpret dreams. And then God actually used the betrayal of that same friend Uh, to keep Joseph in prison two more years so he would be available just at the right time to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and as a result, as we saw, be promoted to prime minister of all of Egypt. He went from the depths of prison to the pinnacle of power, uh, second in authority only to Pharaoh himself. And why did God do this? Because famine was coming. And he wanted to raise Joseph up to prepare Egypt for the famine. And why? So that Jacob, his daddy, 
his brothers and their families would be motivated to come to Egypt to buy grain. And when they did come, of course, they were reunited with Joseph. Uh, There's a wonderful story, as we saw, of Joseph forgiving his brothers and then providing their every need to ensure the survival and the growth of the chosen nation, which eventually would usher in Jesus, the Messiah. Now, it's very easy for us, knowing the story from beginning to end, to connect all the dots, to see the mysterious and miraculous nature of God's providence and guidance in Joseph's life. Uh, We see the plot. Uh, We see the reason behind every heartache, behind every delay. We see that the glory in the end far outweighed the 13 long years of suffering. And we conclude God is great and God is good. But do not forget, during those 13 long years of suffering, Joseph did not have a clue. He saw no plot. He saw, no, he saw absolutely no reason for what he was going through. His life made absolutely no sense to him. He walked in darkness without a ray of light. Many of those years in prison, yet through it all, he maintained his trust in God. And there are three lessons learned from Joseph, which you'll see at the very end of your sermon notes, and that's what we need to complete Uh, This morning, we looked at the first lesson last Sunday, so let me just briefly review that and then we'll cover those two remaining lessons before we conclude today. The first lesson that we looked at last week from Joseph's life is that we are to choose God's righteousness when there appears to be no expectation of reward. We're to choose God's righteousness when there appears to be no expectation of reward. Of reward. Now I can sum this lesson up very simply with a question to challenge you. Are you willing to remain faithful to God even if you see no expectation of reward in this life? Now think about that. Are you willing to remain faithful to God, to continue to trust God, to continue to obey God, even if there are no benefits in this life? If you saw no reward coming to you, only suffering, because that is the position that Joseph was put in for many, many years. And you might ask, well, why would God uh, delay or even withhold the reward in this life? Well, let me answer that with another question. If God delivered everyone from adversity or persecution at the first cry of help, Where would be the opportunity to grow our faith in God? Where would be the opportunity to learn to love others? See, faith is built up in times of darkness when I'm called upon to trust God even when I cannot see God. I think of Job when he was going through his adversity. In Job 23, he said this. He said, I look forward 
and I cannot see God. I look to the right, and I cannot perceive him. I look to the left, and I don't see him. I look behind me, I can't see him. In other words, his suffering and pain was so great, it created such a perplexity in Job's life. I mean, why, God, would you allow this to happen? Why all this suffering? He said, I- I'm-, I'm just in the dark. I can't see God. But he didn't stop there. He said this, although I can't see God, he sees me. He sees the way that I take. And when God has tried me, I will come forth as gold. And love is built up through what? The decentralization of self. What I mean by that is we develop love as our pride becomes broken, as our selfishness is broken, in order to live for the welfare and benefit of others. Bottom line, there is no character development in faith or love without suffering and delay of gratification. These athletes understand this. Any athlete would understand this. You don't develop skills. You don't get in shape overnight. It takes time. It takes repetitive drills. It takes a lot of hard work, hitting the weight room, running, running, running until you can't run anymore, where you're just broken down, and you don't think you can take another step, but that coach kicks you in the old you-know-what and makes you keep going to teach you endurance, perseverance, to build up those muscles so you're ready for the game. And you're able to perform at a very, very high level. So what is the, the, the practical application when I'm suffering adversity or persecution? Now learn, listen now. We learn from Joseph the heroism of what I would call just the patient plodding of faith. It doesn't sound very illustrious, but much of life just comes down to that. Just the patient plotting of faith. In other words, did Joseph volunteer to be sold into slavery and spend all those years in prison? No, of course not. He had absolutely no control over those events in his life. So he focused on the only things he could control, and that was his attitude and his reaction to those events. Although he had absolutely no clue what God was doing, He chose to daily pursue God's righteousness in the mundane affairs of life. He said, I'm going to be the best servant I can be. I'm going to be the best prisoner that I can be. And all I know to do in this darkness is maintain my integrity before God, trust Him, obey Him, and learn to serve others. And as a result... In the fire of Joseph's adversity, through those 13 long years of suffering, God forged the steel of godly character that built up for Joseph treasure in heaven. I think of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 that says these temporary earthly afflictions, sufferings, adversities. They are literally producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. It's just acknowledging that God uses suffering to build into our lives character, and character 
is the coinage, the tender of heaven that builds up for us a treasure. But folks, realize now it's not automatic. You can waste your sorrows. You can crumble under the pressure, become angry, become disappointed with God, to lose your faith in God. But of course, the encouragement in Joseph's life is don't close the book up too quick on God. Let it play out. Because God, in the end, God always ends the story well. Again, it may not be in this life, but there's always that reward in the next. So are you suffering adversity? What are you to do? Follow Joseph's example. No matter your circumstances, don't whine, but shine. Choosing to follow God's righteousness and to serve others. Look at the second truth that we learn from Joseph's life. Hope in God's promise. When there appears to be no hope for deliverance. Hope in God's promise when there appears to be no hope for deliverance. Before Joseph entered his 13 long years of pain and perplexity, God gave this boy, this teenage boy, a promise. A promise that provided him hope through all those years of suffering. The promise was that one day in the future that his brothers who hated him were envious of him, and as, we, as you know, sold him into slavery. Those brothers, even along with his father Jacob, would bow down to him. That there was coming a day in the future where he would rule over them. Now, it is interesting to note at this point in time, there was no what? Written word of God. I mean, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis, where we have this account. And this came some 400 years later. So God gave him this promise through a couple of dreams that he had. So God used these dreams that are mentioned in Genesis 37, verses 5 through 11. And I gave you the reference there in your notes uh, to instill this hope uh, during his years of suffering. And, as we, and we know that Joseph held on to that promise because in Genesis 42, verses 5 through 9, when Joseph's brothers finally come to Egypt to buy grain, and there's been these many years of separation, it's, we're told they don't even recognize Joseph at this point initially. They bowed down to Joseph. And it says when they bowed down to Joseph, it says Joseph remembered. He remembered the dream. He remembered the promise that God gave to him. So it's very obvious that he held on to this promise during all those years of suffering. Now today, praise him, we have God's promises, what? Written down for us, right here in the Word of God. And these promises provide us hope to endure in times of adversity, suffering, and persecution. We have promises like what? God will never leave you. No, he'll never leave you or forsake you. That if God is for you, who can be against you? That nothing can separate you from the love of God. That if you're a child of God, he causes all things, good and bad, to work for your good, your benefit, and his greater glory. Now let me just take, make two points before we move on that are very important for you to realize. 
When you go through suffering, when you go through adversity, this is a truth we learn throughout the entire Bible and human experience. We tend to ask what? Why? Why God? Why God? Why would you do this to me? Why? Stop asking the question because God doesn't give explanations. That's just reality. You see this in God doesn't typically explain himself to you and I. And how can an infinite God explain himself to our finite minds? What God does, instead of giving an explanation, he gives promises. Promises to be an anchor for our soul. So that we hold on to those promises through the suffering. Knowing that God will bring us through. Knowing God will accomplish his promises just like he did in the life of Joseph. The second thing I'd like to point out is realize we are continually confronted, living on planet earth with pain and perplexity and unexplainable suffering and circumstances and uh, all sorts of tribulations and, and, and hurts. And, and when we hit a time of difficulty, and many of you are probably may be in that right now, you have a choice. And here's the fundamental choice. On the one hand, I can look and focus on what I would see as the impossibility of my human circumstances. But this is just, Lord, I, I, I can't handle this. It's just too much for me. And just, just cave. Or you can choose to look at the impossibility of God breaking his promise. That's the choice you have when you're in pain. When your adversity is suffering, am I going to focus on what I see as the impossibility of my circumstances and its overwhelming pain and perplexity, or am I going to focus on the impossibility of God breaking His Word, keeping my trust in Him, knowing that He will see me through? That's the choice. See, it's either belief, trust in God, or just getting eaten up with anxiety, eaten up with worry. I've shared with you many times from this pulpit, the, the Greek word that's translated worry or anxiety in our English Bibles is merimneo. The word literally means to divide, to tear apart, to rip apart. What the word indicates is I get so focused on my difficult circumstances and the fears of what might or might not happen, things I can't even control, that it tears me away from seeing God as a present reality in this moment. And then I just get eaten up with that worry. I get eaten up in that anxiety. I drown in it. So you have a choice. You either focus on those circumstances, or you turn from that and you focus on the integrity of God. That he's a God that cannot break his promise. He always keeps his word. And although you may not understand, just like Joseph was in darkness those many years without a ray of light, you just continue one step at a time. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. Moment by moment, day by day, in the mundane affairs in life, as a servant in Potiphar's house, languishing there in prison, 
and focusing on helping others, serving others as we just shared. Now look at the third, the third and final truth. And that, of course, is to trust in God's sovereignty when there appears to be no purpose in life. Trust in God's sovereignty when there appears to be no purpose in life. Uh, I would like us to read those uh, references. If you have your Bibles, uh, look at Psalm 105. And uh, with where our time is right now, let me just basically read these passages with very little comment, but then I'll make a couple of points. Look at Psalm 105 that summarizes uh, the sovereignty of God in Joseph's life. And he, God, verse 16, 105, verse 16, and he, God, called for a famine upon the land. And again, remember, God's purpose in all of this was to get the promised people, the promised family into Egypt to protect them, to grow them as a nation so that one day he could return them into Canaan to occupy the land. So he said, and he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them. Who sent him? God sent him, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with feathers. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions to imprison his princes at will that he might teach his elders wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt. Thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and he caused his people to be very fruitful. And then turn over to the book of Genesis. Now, the first passage, Genesis 45, is when Joseph first revealed himself to his brothers. They didn't recognize Joseph. Remember, many years had passed. He would have been in Egyptian garb. He would have been clean-shaven, which was not the typical... Uh, mannerism of the uh, of the of the of the Hebrews, um, and then in addition to that, we're told that he never spoke Hebrew to them. He always he always spoke through an interpreter. Uh, but then eventually he reveals himself, and this is the moment. And no, notice this, verse three. Then Joseph said to his brothers, "I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Is Jacob still alive?" But his brothers could not answer him. For they were dismayed at his presence, as you can imagine. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold unto Egypt. Now keep in mind now, he's acknowledging their sin. He's acknowledging their evil. And he's second command only to Pharaoh. And he can have their what? Heads put on the block. And chopped off, and that's probably exactly what they expected. Matter of fact, that is what they're expecting, and we'll see that in a moment. And then he says, and do, verse 5, And do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me to preserve life. And this is the irony of the whole story. Whose lives did God send Joseph into Egypt to preserve? the very brothers and their families that sold him into slavery because they would 
grow to become the chosen nation. Those brothers uh, were the fathers of the 12 tribes of, of, of Israel. And, uh, and then verse 6, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father of Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler of all of the land of Egypt. And then look at chapter 50. This is the last chapter in the book of Genesis. And just give you the, uh, uh, the background to this. What happens is all the families come to Egypt. Jacob comes, and then Jacob dies. Daddy dies. When Daddy died, the brothers thought their lives were over. They reasoned in their minds, the only reason Joseph is not exacting revenge is because he knew it would break Daddy's heart. But now that Daddy's dead, we're dead. And the, and the brothers, are, are they, they plead for mercy. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph should bear grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept. When they spoke to him, then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am I in God's place. And as for you, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So be comforted. And he spoke kindly to them. Now, my time's just about gone, but let me just emphasize a couple things. We don't want to go to the extreme with God's sovereignty to conclude that God causes everything that happens on planet earth. That, that, that is a gross misconception of God. God is holy. God is good. God is loving. Matter of fact, the scripture says he is so holy, he can't even tempt someone to do evil. God is not the author of mistreatment, injustice, suffering, hurt when we wound one another. Those are, those are evil acts that are motivated, perpetrated, uh, by God's arch enemy, the devil, uh, as he uses us to, uh, and manipulates us uh, and uh, gets us under his influence and his control. What God's sovereignty means to a believer is what it says in Romans 8, 28. And we know, not that God causes everything that happens, but God causes what? Everything to work together for our good. In other words, the promise God has given his child, the person who has put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. He says, I give you an ironclad guarantee. 
Yes, you're living on a planet where there is evil. There is mistreatment. You're going to be mistreated. You're going to get wounded. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get attacked for your faith. But I give you this guarantee. I will not let anything touch your life no matter how bad it may be, unless I know in my greatness, in my sovereignty, in my power, I can ultimately cause it to work for your good, for your spiritual benefit, to build up your faith, to build up your character, and to cause it to work for my greater glory. Let me just close with giving you maybe the greatest example of this in our church history. Uh, Aaron, could you put up the first picture? Some of you know this testimony. Many of you do not know this testimony. But the woman on the right is Melanie. Is Betty here, Betty Black? Betty Black, that's her grand, That's her mom right there. That's Melanie's mom right there, and that's Melanie's uh, child, uh, Betty's granddaughter. And many years ago, back in the 80s, Shortly after we opened our crisis pregnancy center, Melanie came into me distraught and in despair. And I just don't have time to go into great detail, but she had been raped, violently raped. And as a result of that rape, she became pregnant. Now, I'm going to be very honest with you about her testimony. And I've heard... Melanie shared this. She was angry with God. She was struggling with disappointment. I mean, you could see it in her eyes, the rage, the struggle she was having. I mean, ever since she was a little girl, right here in this church, she had sung, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. She had sung about this God who holds the whole world in his hands. And her struggle was this. And you're going to tell me then that a loving, all-powerful God just literally just, just sat on his hands in heaven and watched me, one of his children, be violated in that fashion. And then you're going to tell me this God who I've been taught all my life is the one who opens and closes the womb. He allowed me to get pregnant as a result of rape. And then she said, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to trust him again in my life. I mean, she was hurting. She was struggling. Just like we hurt. Just like we struggle, right? Let's be honest. That's the reality. That's what pain and perplexity does to us. Uh, none, none of us are willing to admit it. But, but we, we're tempted to think God is guilty of child abuse. It's interesting how God broke through into her life. In my office, I rehearsed for her, guess what? The story of Joseph. Just walked her through the story, a story she was already familiar with. And then when I concluded the story, I turned to her, and this is what I said. I said, Melanie... Here's reality. We live in a world that's not right. And there's a lot of evil in this world. And I don't understand all the whys behind this, but God in His sovereignty has chosen that He's not going to make His children immune from all those evils. 
But he has determined, just like we see in Joseph's life, that he's not going to allow anything to touch our lives. He's not going to allow anything to happen. That he ultimately, although initially evil can work for our good, our benefit, his greater glory. So why don't you and I right now, instead of believing that abortion would be the lesser of two evils in your case, put our faith in a God who out of the greatest of evils can bring good. Who in the greatest of tragedies can bring triumph. Now she was struggling that day. Her faith was fragile. It was weak. But she chose to put her trust in God. And many of you that were around back in those days, you remember how God stepped in and just carried her through that pregnancy. And then she gave birth to this absolutely beautiful girl that she named Grace. As a testimony of the grace of God that sustained her while little Grace was being formed just inches below in her womb. Many of us had the opportunity to watch Grace begin to grow. Some of you were here when Grace made her profession of faith in Jesus as her Lord and her Savior. She eventually, uh, Melanie met a man through our church. Uh, I think he was military, wasn't he? And uh, they moved to Texas. Uh, we were mad at him when they took Grace with her. <laughs> and... Uh, she was a light for Jesus in her youth group. And she's continued to fall. Show the next picture. That's grace as a bride. That's what God can do. God, out of the greatest of evils, can bring something beautiful like that. And then the next picture, Aaron. There you have the three generations. Melanie, Grace, and Grace's first child. She has a second child now. And uh, continuing to walk with God. And then I'll close with this. Right here in this pulpit, I've heard, Grace, I've heard Melanie share her testimony. And she ended it this way. She said, you know, there's not a day that goes by. Now, this is, this is, this is way after everything. Uh, Grace is, you know, beginning to get a little age to her. She says, there's not a day that goes by that I still do not ask God why. But she says, but now from a totally different perspective. Initially, it was why and anger, perplexity, pain. But now... It's why, God, would you have chosen to bless me in such a special, unique way? And what that man meant for evil that night, God turned it for good. He caused it for good. And not only have we seen the wonderful faith of grace in the impact she's had on others, but do you know, of course, you know my involvement with the Pregnancy Center movement over these years nationwide, God has used this testimony all across the nation. I mean literally all across the nation. 
I'm not embellishing. There are hundreds of women that turn to Jesus Christ as a result of this testimony, turn from abortion to choose life for their babies in very difficult situations, and turn to the grace of God to see them through. Again, what that man meant for evil, God caused it to work for good. Amen? And then I simply close with this. Have you been raped by life? Have you been raped by life circumstances? Are you hurting, wounded, perplexed in pain? What God did for Melanie, he's prepared to do for you. What God did for Joseph, he's prepared to do for you. Will you trust him? Will you obey him? Would you bow with me in prayer? I would have to imagine that in a crowd this size, there are individuals that are really going through deep, deep, dark waters of adversity right now, and I know God has spoken to your heart. And there's nothing to be ashamed about if you've struggled with anger and disappointment with God. I do. We all do. Job did. All the Bible characters did. But God is so committed to building up our character, so committed to accomplishing His purposes, He's willing to be misunderstood for a time by His children. To accomplish His good and benefit and purposes in and through our lives. And I hope that you've seen that this morning. And so I want to give you the opportunity right now that I gave Melanie many years ago. Would you be willing right now to turn from your anger, your disappointment, and in your pain, even though there's no explanation, you're still perplexed, will you trust God? Will you say, God, forgive me for my anger, forgive me, and I trust you. I trust you. I'm going to believe that you're going to do for me what you did for Joseph. I'm going to believe that you're going to do for me what you did for Melanie. And in this, although I can't see it right now, you're going to cause it to work ultimately for my good, for my spiritual benefit, and your greater glory. And then one last thing. There may be some here that do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Seeing these football players here this morning has reminded me of my conversion to Christ. My life evolved around football. It was my God. I played up in the D.C. area, came down here to play at Auburn University. But even with accomplishments, there was a void about my life. There was an emptiness about my life. It eventually took me into alcohol, it took me into drugs, took me into immorality, just trying to fill that void, and then eventually you're just using that to escape the emptiness, to escape the pain and the anguish.
And then I'm so thankful that when I was 19 years of age, God brought me into the presence of some very committed, authentic believers where I saw the reality of Jesus in them. And I learned through them that Jesus loved me, that Jesus came to this world to die for the penalty of my sin, my wrong, to give me the gift of forgiveness, to give me the gift of eternal life. And I'll never forget on September 20th, 1970, I made my heart Christ home as I invited Jesus into my life to forgive me of my sin, to take control of my life. And for that, from that moment, I began to follow him. Yes, there have been ups and downs, but I've never, of course, regretted that decision. And I praise God for his unfailing love in my life and his grace. So if you're here today and you do not know Jesus, as I did not know Jesus, I invite you right now to invite Jesus into your life. Say, Jesus, come into my life. I put my trust in you. Yes, you're the Son of God who came from heaven to this earth. Thank you for dying for me, dying for my sin. Thank you for rising from the dead to offer me forgiveness, to offer me your life. And yes, I turn away from running my life to follow you, to follow you as my Savior and Lord. And yes, I make my heart your home. Come on in. Forgive me. Take control. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Father, thank you for your goodness and your mercy. And Lord, you know the needs that exist in this sanctuary at this moment. You know those that are lost that need to come to know you. You know those who are saved that have been struggling, that need to renew their trust in you. So Lord, meet us in our need, meet us in our human deficiency, failure, and sin, and let your grace abound. For your honor and your glory, for it's in Jesus' name we do pray, amen.